0: So given the competitive landscape that you outline, nonprofits have um, a lot of work ahead in terms of making sure that they stay competitive in today's market and engage their donors and meet those donors where they are. So how can nonprofits uh, use some of the resources available to innovate? I think the first place uh, nonprofits can start with is their own data.
1: Excited to be able to to bring Dr. Oseli to uh, to you and whatever app that you're listening to this episode. You know, every episode of Group Thinkers appears as a part of a season. This is in the second season. Whenever you're you're listening to this episode, the first season is entirely available on the podcast app of your choice to uh, download, stream, and Netflix-style binge. Uh, as is the second season. And so hopefully you're enjoying the second season uh, and you enjoy Dr. Osali's chat. Before we get to it, just real quick, want to uh, plug for you to follow and join us on Twitter. Uh, you can find Group Thinkers at Group Thinkers. You can also follow at RKD Group. That's where we just uh, continue the conversation. Whenever the episodes end, we go back and we re-engage with the the guests that we've had on the show, so that we can just continue fostering conversation. And so much of the the takeaways that we've had from different episodes have led to additional subsequent conversation, cups of coffee, and whatnot, to to really uh, get. Further into the weeds on how we can continue to transform and curate innovation in the nonprofit marketing space. So, for sure, follow us on Twitter. Uh, and and with that, I want to get right to the interview. So, here you go. Here's Dr. Una Osalee on Group Thinkers. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Group Thinkers. It's me, your host, Justin, and uh, thrilled that you would check out this specific episode. Joining me today uh, from the Indiana University School of, Lilly School of Philanthropy is Dr. Una Osalee. Dr. Osalee, how are you today?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking, and thank you for having me on the program today.
1: Well, it's a privilege to to chat with you. We're going to cover a lot of really cool things today. Uh, you know, I'm really curious about your perspective on uh, just this next generation of leaders in the nonprofit space, and and what the Lilly School of Philanthropy is doing to. Help prepare this next generation. Uh, want to talk to you about some of the the big trends and models that you see uh, opportunities and uh, some capacity issues maybe that you see forming the nonprofit space. But I want to start with you, uh, and you know I, I think that you're uh, you have an amazing story and and I was just hoping you might give our listeners a chance to uh, hear your story and. And how you got connected into the nonprofit space and philanthropy.
0: Thank you. Um, so, I have an interesting journey, as many do, in the philanthropic sector. I was born in New York City. I have uh, my mother is American and my father is Nigerian. And they met as students at Cornell University, but my parents moved back to Nigeria when I was six months old. So I had the opportunity to grow up in a completely different part of the world, but with a very global family and global perspective, um, and lots of great experiences as a young person touching various aspects of philanthropy, both formal, uh, working with organizations and volunteering, but also informally watching generosity at work, where my father was instrumental in helping all of his nieces and nephews uh, receive uh, more education and actually reach um, their full potential in terms of their career goals and aspirations. So that was my entree into philanthropy, especially as a young person. And um, many, many years later, as a college student and undergraduate student at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I had the opportunity again to become more engaged in the nonprofit sector first as a volunteer, uh, tutoring children in inner-city Boston, and then uh, helping to run a summer program in Roxbury in Boston uh, for uh, two years, and having to run all of the aspects of the program, including fundraising, including hiring staff, engaging community. So it was a wonderful uh, foundation, especially as a college student, to see how the nonprofit sector works and how to engage and build a community around a particular issue and cause. Um, As a graduate student, I was a a doctoral student in economics uh, at Northwestern University. I studied a topic that at the time was not on everybody's radar screen, but it was looking at migrants, immigrants to the U.S. and their contributions to their communities, both here in the U.S. and abroad. And that, topic got me engaged in the formal study of philanthropy. And it's such an uh, important topic because migrant remittances are now um, hundreds of billions of dollars. In fact, an estimate is more than $400 billion remitted to developing countries. But at the time, it wasn't researched very well. So one of the big uh, challenges in studying philanthropy when I was in graduate school was that there wasn't as much data available. But today, one of the revolutions is that there is more data about philanthropy, making it possible for a more formal study of philanthropy. And so, I have had the privilege, really, of helping build the data infrastructure in the philanthropic sector at the Lilly Family School. And uh, in that position, have also seen tremendous change and growth in both the research of philanthropy, the study of philanthropy, but also its practice globally.
1: You have a tremendous global perspective, and I love that it connects back to your youth and that that was a seed that was planted in you. You know, one of the things that we find is that uh, people who are engaged in supporting organizations have generally been predisposed to engage in other organizations, meaning this idea of generosity or philanthropy, it, it builds a deeper sense and it grows and grows and grows. And so, I love that you are able to apply that to your craft. Now, when you talk about your global perspective, one of the things that you and I have chatted about before and I love is that you've had the, the honor uh, of appearing, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the honor, maybe it's uh, the, <laughs> the fear, the trepidation, but you've had the chance to appear before the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee to testify to what's happening in global philanthropy. And so, uh, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but just maybe expand on, uh, a little more. How is philanthropic giving reshaping how we address global problems?
0: Yeah, so it was an honor to appear before the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee. And in doing so, I had to both call on my own research background, but also to do a lot of preparation um, in order to answer some of the tough questions that were posed to me during that process. Uh, One of the takeaways for me in conducting that landscape, but also drawing on my own research background, is that uh, globally we're seeing uh, the philanthropic sector really evolve. And in particular, when we look at how global problems are being solved, whether that's in healthcare, climate change, um, global security, the questions around education, reproductive health, any number of areas, we see the rise of collaboration. So governments partnering with uh, nonprofits and foundations and corporations. In the past, when you looked at patterns of perhaps approaches to solving global problems, they were focused mostly on the government, uh, whether those were multilateral institutions like the World Bank or um, donors like um, bilateral donors like the United States, the United Kingdom, working in those uh, in other countries in developing or emerging economies. Today we see a much more complex array of actors and often working in collaboration with one another. That's a really important feature of uh, the approaches and I think it makes sense because we realize that one actor cannot do it all. Um, Governments alone cannot solve all the problems, the size of the problems and the complexity of some of our global challenges as we mentioned, whether it's water, health, education, requires that we draw on the skills and the strength and harness all of the um, capacities and assets of those different sectors. So the government, the business sector, and the philanthropic sector. So that's one of the aspects of the landscape that I think really do matter for all the different uh, problems that we're trying to address. The second uh, big picture takeaway for me is the importance of technology. So when we look at uh, global philanthropy today, we understand that many individuals are working across borders to solve problems. And sometimes they can actually reach across, um, whether it's to sub-Saharan Africa or to Asia, to participate in uh, giving and making a difference in advocating or just raising awareness about an issue. So we have not just uh, more collaboration, but also technology helping drive new solutions. And we have a new uh, toolkit to use to solve many of those problems. And it may be, in some cases, traditional grant making, but increasingly uh, impact investing and many more um, ways of financing uh, problem solving at the global level.
1: You know, what's so great about that is, you're right, there is this rise of of collaboration and Uh, new models that are being leveraged specifically with tech in mind to solve some of these global challenges. Now, uh, on the flip side of that, Maybe the result is also a new era of competition uh, amongst nonprofits in a marketing sense. Now we're at you know 1.6 million nonprofits and growing, and and I know that uh, that the team there at Lilly has done work around the trends in philanthropy, uh, specifically with uh, generosityforlife.org to understand you know some of this growing competition and what this means with both opportunities and hurdles. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Generosity for Life project?
0: So the Generosity for Life um, project is a long-standing project of the Lilly Family School. The website was officially launched uh, in 2017 um, at the end of the year, so it's been in existence for over a year. But what it allows us to do is share the data about American generosity and philanthropy from more than 9,000 American families and show how those patterns and trends are evolving over time. So the Generosity for Life project allows a a stakeholder to customize the data to provide um, to look up various uh, regional and um, sector-specific data trends. And then a really fun, uh, interactive component of the Generosity for Life website is a new tool called the Give meter which, uh, will anyone can basically put in their own information and get a view of how they compare to other Americans like them in terms of their giving behavior. What we hope to do is spark and ignite, uh, much more, um, information about philanthropy. We saw that there was a lot of, uh, more, descriptive information about how Americans are giving, but there was a gap as it relates to the data on philanthropy. And the Generosity for Life website is designed to bridge that gap and make the data and information much more accessible to people across the country.
1: This episode of Group Thinkers is brought to you by Holidays, the myth and reality behind giving in December 2018. Did you know that one in five donors reported giving less to nonprofits last December? I know that for organizations that we work with, things were great through November, even maybe the first week of December. And then compared to what we had traditionally seen in the last three weeks of December, things started to dry up. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who noticed a sudden drop in donations compared to what we are used to with December. So some questions started to pop up into the nonprofit marketing ether. Was it the tax laws? Was it the economy? Was it the government shutdown? Well, we decided to find answers from the donors perspective. So RKD Group partnered with McQueen, Mackin and Associates to conduct a unique study speaking directly to donors to find out why giving dropped so drastically last December. You can download the full white paper at givingindecember.com, find out exactly what donors had to say about their change in giving behavior, and use that to build your strategies going into year-end 2019. So head over to givingindecember.com, download the white paper, and now back to group thinkers. And that accessibility data is is really key you know like like I said, whenever you have this rising number of nonprofits, therefore competition in the market of uh, many organizations in the current let 's call them cause vertical, so whether or not it 's an international relief and development organization or health or environmental because there's such great but in competition, there's a need to leverage technology and to leverage the insights that uh, are coming from research projects like what the school is putting out. Uh, and it, it helps fuel you know, the work that uh, people like myself and others do to get a different perspective and insight so that we can more appropriately connect. So w- what about on the hurdle side? I know you have a, a, a perspective on uh, some of the hurdles that nonprofits are facing regarding, uh, you know, retention and 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 data uh, that uh, you see right now in the, the nonprofit marketplace.
0: So given the competitive landscape that you outlined, nonprofits have um, a lot of work ahead in terms of making sure that they stay competitive in today's market and engage their donors and meet those donors where they are. So how can nonprofits uh, use some of the resources available to innovate? I think the first place uh, a nonprofit can start with is their own data, knowing their current donors. Their uh, prospective donors, and even perhaps donors who have given to them in the past but are no longer engaged with the organization. So, my uh, take on this is that research starts with your own database often, but then organizations can also look beyond that and think about who their prospective donors are and even um, use some of the resources that are available in the sector for planning and for um, essentially for innovating in the future. And specifically, one of the ways to do this is the benchmarking resources. We have a new report that was just launched earlier this year called the Philanthropy Outlook that allows nonprofits to better understand the macro environment that they're working in. What are the factors or the levers that will drive change in the future? And alongside that, I think it's it's paying attention to those aggregate trends uh, in terms of the big areas that uh, Nonprofits can expect to see change. I think number one is certain demographics. We're seeing uh, younger donors uh, come into their own in terms of their financial and economic resources. Uh, So millennials are one of the largest groups on the horizon. However, many organizations have not yet figured out how to engage that youngest group of donors. Um, And once you engage those donors, how to retain them because donor retention is a big uh, opportunity as well for nonprofits. Similarly, as we look at the demographic, uh, divide, we also see a very large number of, um, baby boomers who are starting to plan, uh, or plan for their retirement or have retired already. And that's a, a very important group to think about as it relates to plan giving. And then finally, as we look across all the different groups, we understand that each generation brings its own particular mode of engagement, their preferences, their priorities, their giving priorities. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. Around the demographic shifts, we're also seeing much more diversity in terms of donors around race, ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation, and gender. With women... Uh, Right, with women's rising visibility and influence in the nonprofit sector, there's also a, a gap often in terms of how nonprofits are engaging those women as donors. So I think all of this put together means that uh, it is a competitive um, market for many nonprofits, but there are also distinct opportunities that they can uh, take advantage of and prepare for. And in particular, understanding these different demographic uh, group and what their particular um, engagement strategies might be would be very very important for driving success
1: you know one of the things that you shared when you were talking about your own personal story is that you saw generosity at work in the way that your father and your family engaged with uh, your larger family outside of your your nuclear family and and seeing that generosity at work help form a better picture for you. And I'm drawn back to that as you speak to these major trends for nonprofit marketers of knowing your data, looking at the aggregate trends. To me, it's, there's this big picture umbrella of taking a step back to see generosity at work so that you can change or shift your marketing strategy. Because we are in this time where we do have unprecedented amount of data. We do have um, people who are focused on large-scale research like yourself and your colleagues. We have this unprecedented amount. And in some ways, as marketers, we we either refuse to innovate or we become paralyzed by the amount of information and opportunities we have around us to do so. And so there's this taking the step back and seeing generosity at work that I think is a nice call to action for <laughs> nonprofit leaders uh, in terms of how they approach this year and, uh, and data going forward. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, uh, talk to us a, a little bit more. I know you've you've shared a couple of projects, but I'm I'm fascinated by the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy and its background, and then just how you engage the next generation. How are you preparing them? for the hurdles that they're going to see in the next 10 to 20 to 50 years in the nonprofit nonprofit landscape. Uh, give us a little inside perspective on how the school approaches the development of this next generation.
0: The Lilly Family School is the world's first school on philanthropy, and it is um, global in terms of its orientation. Students have an opportunity to not just learn the practices of philanthropy but the whys of philanthropy uh, because the program is very much an interdisciplinary program and uh, students benefit from uh, faculty members from all different disciplines ranging from economics to sociology political science uh, the health sciences and even the and the arts and humanities as well and so many students emerge, not just uh, with a, a practical understanding of the philanthropic sector, but also an underpinning that's grounded in the uh, why philanthropy in the first place, what's the role of philanthropy in a democratic society, and what uh, does the philanthropic sector add to uh, the development of Um, prosperous and healthy communities. I think that's a distinct advantage. The other piece is that students benefit from the depth and breadth of the school's resources. And uh, starting with, uh, the school has a master's program, and also that master's program is available in an online format, so you can enroll from anywhere in the world. We also offer a doctoral program in philanthropic studies, and about half of our students are international students. And then finally, we have a bachelor's degree program. And so we're seeing that many young people are interested in a career in philanthropy and getting started early to get the, as we said, the practical skills as far as uh, what it means to be in a philanthropic sector, but also the uh, thought, the thinking, so that they can be problem solvers, they can be innovators, and ultimately they can be leaders. Uh, I think the difference with um, attending uh, the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy in today's environment is that uh, individuals who enter the programs have a chance to actually start out their careers in the philanthropic sector and get the skills, both uh, hard skills as well as soft skills that they will need to navigate a career, a path in philanthropy, whether they emerge as fundraisers or grant makers or even um, individuals who start their own nonprofit organizations and run. Their own nonprofit organizations. We've seen uh, our alumni occupy some of the uh, most visible and prominent leadership roles in the sector. And when we talk to them about their uh, career and their success, they credit uh, the opportunities they had as students to actually uh, think, uh, problem solve, write, uh, but also get practical, hands on experience in non-profit uh, organizations or in foundations or corporate um, settings. And all of those things translate into confidence to navigate a changing sector, uh, an uncertain landscape, and uh, the leadership that is required um, across the philanthropic sector, no matter what uh, seat you occupy.
1: And it it's increasingly, you know, the acceleration of change that our sector is facing is, uh, is increasing. And so problem solvers, innovators, and leaders, as opposed to that being three different groups, uh, what's so exciting is that, uh, you know, people like yourself and others are sewing into this next generation so that we have almost a group of unicorns. Uh, that will be able to enter the field as part problem solver, part innovator, part leader to address, geez, the the changing landscape of data, data privacy and regulation, uh, the use of research and analytics, connecting that to marketing strategy, uh, leveraging data to be able to go into the field and create programs to tackle and solve challenges that uh that we are facing across the entire globe it's uh it is incredible work that you that you and your colleagues are doing and and i'm very thankful i know that many people in our sector are so thankful for uh what the school does and the research that you and your team put out that help us get a bigger picture on the nonprofit space as a whole
0: well thank you and we really benefit from the um strong uh, and vibrant community around us of nonprofits, of researchers from around the world that help uh, contribute to the knowledge base that we're building. And I also I also join you in um, just actually celebrating the tradition that we have um, and the, the strong community we've built around the philanthropic sector in the United States, as well as a lot of the resources that uh, we can draw on ranging from the Foundation Center to uh, the National Center for Charitable Statistics, I think the wealth of resources contribute to making the sector uh, healthy, strong, and uh, it for success in the future.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Dr. Osley. And uh, just you know, lastly, as we wrap up, um, and, and I know that this was probably equally as stressful as appearing before uh, you know, a Senate subcommittee, uh, today, you know, our chat. But uh, just as we wrap up, what, what, where can people connect with you online? How can they connect with uh, other colleagues from the School of Philanthropy uh, online?
0: So the school has a great website. I encourage you to visit the school's website and also to connect with faculty directly. Uh, my email address is right there on our website. And also um, I am very uh, comfortable uh, answering questions and also happy to hear questions from uh, practitioners, nonprofit leaders, and others who care about the uh, sector. Um, in addition to that, I recently joined Instagram, um, and so feel free to connect with me on Instagram as well.
1: I love it. I love that you're uh, <laughs> that you're talking about Instagram. You know, do we're so as we're recording this, we're just on the heels of the news that Facebook is going to be integrating more of a, a donation experience in, into Instagram. So I'm um, certainly glad that, uh, that you're active there. Group Thinkers is active there as well. And uh, so so good stuff there. Dr. Osalee, thank you so much for the time today. And I look forward to us getting to chat again down the road.
0: Excellent. My um, Just to give you the website, it's philanthropy.iupui.edu, or you can just Google the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
1: So there's the chat with Dr. Osley. And, uh, you know, I, I loved talked about a little bit on this episode we talked about it in conversations leading up to the the uh, the interview itself about our appearance in front of the senate and uh, dr osley the preparation that she took to having her arms around what's happening in global philanthropy prior to appearing before the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee. And she told me that she had sought out the advice and insight from multiple people that have played a role in her career to bounce ideas and concepts off of them. Now, here's where I'm going to tie it back into what we do as nonprofit marketers. Uh, some of the challenges that we're facing feel as complex or as intense as an appearance before a Senate uh, committee or subcommittee. There's a lot of pressure on nonprofit leaders to succeed and to continue to grow what's happening, right? To get more dollars in the door, to get more donors in the door. We've got so many uh, pieces of content that are being published about struggles and acquisition, struggles and retention, yet GDP for overall giving in the US has stayed at roughly 2% for decades upon decades. So we have this trend of less people but flat to more giving, and so it's holding steady. And the only way that I think that we're going to really solve those challenges is by seeking out counsel from others, coming together, seeking out counsel from others, sharing from what someone's learning in another vertical or what someone's learning with another channel, and being bold enough to apply that and test that into our space. And so I love Dr. Osalee sharing that experience. I love applying that. Uh, or or drawing a parallel to what GroupThinkers is intended to be as a podcast. So appreciate you allowing me to get on that kind of small uh, soapbox, but an important soapbox nonetheless. Hey, I mentioned at the outset, but just want to make sure that you're following us on Twitter at GroupThinkers and that you're also following at RKD Group. Uh, This podcast could not be possible if it weren't for... Uh, RKD group uh, giving us the resources and the opportunity to have conversations with these uh, these nonprofit leaders and innovators. So big ups to them. Uh, so throw us a follow on Twitter. Be sure to click subscribe in your podcast app so that you can get every episode of group thinkers as a part of the second season and if you haven't go back and listen to the first there's some good ones in there that uh, that you're going to want to check out so that's it for today hopefully you have enjoyed uh, our time together and you can immediately jump into the next season two episode right Uh, so that's it so we'll see you down the road GroupThinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com podcast. Special thanks goes out to the production team, including Ryan Mellinger, as well as our content marketing team, Suzanne, Holly, and Carly for their work on this and every episode of GroupThinkers.